this is a very short, um, literally five verses. And uh, what I found is that it's so packed with, that's better, it's so packed with stuff that once I got into it, I couldn't really stop. And um, so it may be a little bit overambitious, but I just ask you to bear with me. And um, if some of it is just rubbish, just feel free to, to admit that and say, I don't think that's really, you know. But, but let's just trust God that in his word, there is something that we can learn from. So we're in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 13, and I'll just read that. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Immediately, the spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the, wild anim- with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Amen. Now, this is a passage that is in Matthew and Luke's Gospels. And in Matthew and Luke's Gospels, there's this dialogue between Jesus and Satan. And the emphasis is all on the temptation of Jesus. And Mark is giving us a different version of it. He's giving us a very compressed version of sort of the same thing. And I think whenever I read Mark, this is one of those passages where I just sort of skip through it. It's a prelude to the action that is going to come next. You know, Jesus begins his ministry. He selects his disciples. He calls them. And this is almost like, this is the short version of what is in those other Gospels. And uh, so that's my tendency when seeing this and when I immediately saw this in preparation. However, what I want to suggest is that the fact that Mark doesn't focus on the same details that Luke and Matthew do does not mean that the way he has done this and presented it is not important. Um, And the fact that he leaves out the actual dialogue between Jesus and Satan um, doesn't mean that Mark thinks that's not important. It just means that he's possibly highlighting or wanting us to have a different perspective on the same thing. So I think like at the outset of this morning, I think what I'd like to say is that our starting point or our presupposition ought to be that Mark is trying to tell us something specific that the other two Gospels do not tell us. Now, I know that Mark was probably written first, but anyway, in the providence of God, Matthew and Luke felt that they should have elaborated on it, but Mark felt he was doing what he needed to do. So... With that as our starting point, there is, there's a sequence of seven things that happen in this passage. Jesus was baptized. The Holy Spirit descended on him. The Father then spoke and affirmed his love for him and his satisfaction with him. Jesus was then sent into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he was tempted by the devil. He was with the wild animals or the wild beasts. And then finally, angels ministered to him. Now, what I want, the ambitious thing I'm going to try and do is suggest that those seven things give us a theology of the whole Bible. All right? And they give us a theology of mission that is rooted in Jesus' life and ministry, but also point to what our own calling and destiny are as believers and followers of Jesus. And the thing that wraps it all together 
and holds it together is Jesus' baptism, the first thing that happens. So we're going to see that Jesus' movement from baptism into the wilderness and back again, okay, first of all, it mirrors Israel's time in the wilderness. It mirrors the Exodus and the time in the wilderness. And we're going to see how Jesus' fulfillment of, of that promise, if you like, or that prefiguration means that we, the global people of God, we're not going to fail as Israel failed in the same way. And actually, it is our destiny to share in Jesus' inheritance as the ruler and saviour of the world. Not because of us, but because of him. So let me just say a few words about baptism. I became a Christian when I was 18, or nearly 18, and joined a Baptist church. Now, I know that I'm in the presence of some Baptists, and I'm as good a Baptist as anybody here. Um, But of course, when I say I joined a Baptist church, it's never that simple in a Baptist church, because they make you wait. Um, And they make you wait, and you do the membership course, and you have to go through all of that. And for me, it was about nine or ten months. They wanted to make sure that I was a Christian and that I knew everything, you know, that I was taking on. And then at the end of that, I was baptized and welcomed into membership in the church. Now, so during that period of time, you know, a lot of it was focused on baptism and what it was all leading up to. Now, I don't know if any of you had the same experience, but as a completely new Christian and as a young adult, I didn't really have a background in Christianity. I didn't come from a Christian home. I found the idea of baptism strange. I mean, I accepted it, but I didn't really think too deeply about it um, because it was strange. What, what has being dunked, or sprink, dunked in water or sprinkled with water got to do with believing and following Jesus? Now, one thing that I was told straight away was that baptism was a sign of repenting and turning away from sin and putting my faith in Christ. So it's a symbolic death to my old sinful life and a resurrection to a new life of obedience to God through Christ. And wrapped up in that is that it's also a symbolic washing away of sin. And, And this is all correct and I'm not casting any, you know, heaven forbid that I would suggest that none of that is true. But Paul says in Romans 6, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, by him, with him, by baptism, into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And this was also given as a a reason why, you know, we don't baptize babies as Baptists. You know, because turning away from sin and choosing to follow Jesus are not things that you can do when you are a baby, when you, you, know, you don't have an interior dialogue, you don't have any self-awareness, you, you, know, you, you know what it's like when you're a baby. Or, you know, maybe, we can't remember what it was like to be a baby, but you know, as I tell my kids, I remind them all the time what it was like when they were babies. You know? So we're familiar with that a baby, basically a baby can't make those choices, and so we don't baptize babies. Another thing that Baptists and sort of um, most free church Protestants say is that baptism is an opportunity to give a public testimony as to what Jesus has done for us. In other words, invite all your friends, pack the church with your friends, and and I did that. Um, And at least uh, as I was thinking about this, I recalled that because of the friends that came to my baptism, I think at least one of them did become a Christian because of that first contact with church. And all of that is well and good, but 
the problem is when I started to read the Bible, I didn't quite see what I was being told there. Firstly, Jesus is baptized. And this raised the basic question, you know, silly me. If baptism is primarily about turning away from sin and believing in Christ, why did Jesus, who was sinless, need to be baptized? And I never got an answer to this. Sometimes the answer was, well, Jesus was baptized, and if it was good enough for him, it's good enough for you. And, you know, I wasn't trying to get out of being baptized. I was just asking this question. If it's about sin, and Jesus didn't sin, why? And then secondly, I couldn't find anywhere in Scripture about where it says that baptism is about giving a public testimony. For sure, there are public baptisms, and John the Baptist's baptisms were extremely public. But I also saw in Scripture, I saw baptisms taking place on lonely desert roads in the middle of nowhere, and also baptisms conducted in private homes in the dead of night. So the opposite of public. However, the basic question remained. If Jesus was sinless and had nothing to repent of, why was he baptised? So, the answer that I've sort of arrived at is based on a bigger picture of the Bible, of the whole story of the Bible. And I've come to see that in terms of that, baptism, or the theme of baptism, it occurs throughout the whole Bible. And the basic signification of baptism is that it is new creation. It's new life, or life from death. Um, And as Jesus said to Nicodemus, you know, being born again is a matter of water and spirit. So in the original creation, on the first page of the Bible, there was water, and the spirit was hovering over the surface of the water. And then God began his creative work by separating the land from the water. And if we think about it, the flood was a baptism. On the one hand, it was a baptism of judgment because the ancient world was destroyed. And on the other hand, eight people were saved through the water. It was a baptism of life. And after the flood, Scripture says in Genesis 8.1, a wind blew the water away or began to push the water away. And underneath it all was a completely new world and a second chance for humanity. Moses, baby Moses, was drawn out of the water and saved from death by Pharaoh's daughter. And again, in the Exodus itself, when they crossed the Red Sea, which 1 Corinthians 10 says was a baptism, it was a wind, the spirit that held the water back so they could cross the sea on dry land. So in the Old Testament, there's this strong theme of water and spirit, meaning or creating new life bringing new life out of death and destruction. And in the Gospels, Jesus even described his crucifixion as a baptism. In Mark and Luke, Jesus says, there is a baptism I must undergo. And although Jesus suffered that, he went through that baptism, and it was a terrible experience, we know from Hebrews that he did that. He did that because of the joy that had been set before him. And the joy that had been set before him was what was on the other side of the cross. In other words, the new human race, the redeemed human race, and the new heavens and the new earth. So baptism for him was like the valley of the shadow of death. But on the other side is joy and life. 
So, as well as representing a personal turning away from sin and a turning to Christ, baptism represents death to the old world of sin and death and the creation of new life and a new order. So when Jesus came to John to be baptised, John, John was like a good evangelical. He said, Lord, you're the one who needs to baptise me. He recognised that. But Jesus replied, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfil all righteousness. So Jesus wasn't baptised because he was a sinner who needed to die to his old life of sin and be resurrected to a new life. Jesus was baptised because... Baptism is the mark of and the entry point of the new creation. And Jesus is the first member and the head of the new creation. Colossians uh, 1.18 says, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So baptism is the gateway to being a member of the new human race. For us, it symbolizes our death and our resurrection. Um, but for Jesus, it represents the fact that he is the first person of the new baptized human race. So we are the people of God and we're the ones who have been chosen and saved by God at this point in time. We live in a present evil age, but we're baptized. And because we're part of that new creation, we're going to see that new creation come to fulfillment when Jesus returns. But until he returns, being baptised, in other words, being a member of God's family and living in the world, means that other things will happen to us and through us. So I want to just look at what the passage says about that now. The first thing, or the next thing that happens in the sequence is that the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. And the imagery that Mark gives us is both violent and peaceful at the same time. So on the one hand, the Spirit appears as a dove, which is a very gentle and meek bird and a symbol of peace. But on the other hand, when, when, the, um, when Mark uses, when he says the heavens were opened, the Greek word literally means torn open or ripped open. So on the one hand, God tore open the heavens and then this you know, violent imagery and then this very gentle bird comes down as the symbol of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus. And this is an image of the ministry of Jesus. You know, we know that Jesus is both gentle and approachable, and he willingly gave himself up to death on our part. Um, we know that he said, you know, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But on the other hand, John the Baptist declared of Jesus, or, you know, what he said when Jesus was about to appear was, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So Jesus is both a gentle savior and a friend, but he's also, you know, he's going to come back in judgment. And, and he's not going to be gentle and kind necessarily, not to everybody when he comes back. Um, and that is, you know, basically something we have to just accept. So we also need to be filled with the Spirit so that we can enter fellowship with God. And we also need the Spirit's power to be able to fulfill our callings, to stand firm against opposition, 
and have strength to sort of run that race that he's marked out for us to the end. Now, after the Holy Spirit had descended upon Jesus, a voice from heaven declares, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And again, I'd like us all to make note or take note here that God the Father says to God the Son, Jesus, that he loves him and he is pleased with him before he has done anything. This is the very beginning. This is the first page of Mark's gospel. Jesus hasn't done anything. He hasn't accomplished his task yet. And yet God says, I love you and I'm pleased with you. Okay, and this is the way God does things. God always moves from grace. The starting point is always grace with God. It's unconditional. He loves us unconditionally. We're saved and delivered and we are believers because God loves us and he wants and delights to do those things for us. He doesn't give us our salvation because we've earned it by completing a task. You know, this is something that we need to say all the time because I think as Christians, it's so easy for us to slip into legalism. It's so easy to slip into that mode of, you know, and this can depend on our upbringing, how we were brought up, how we were, what our teachers said to us in school, all kinds of things that we have to earn approval and love from other people or our parents or authority figures or whoever. But with God, it always begins with grace. And I think a good picture of that is in the creation when, when God made Adam, it was late on the sixth day of creation. Okay? And then the next day it says God rested on the seventh day. But for, think about it. For Adam, the first full day that he existed was a day of rest. So while God had, God, God had worked six days and then rested, Adam woke up on his first morning and it was a day of rest. So that's a picture of grace. We begin from a place of rest. We begin from a position of grace. And it is on the basis of grace that we then go into the world to obey Jesus. And we never do that perfectly. But we always can fall back on that position that the Lord is pleased with us and that he loves us. So when we believe when we believe and we're baptized, we are in baptism, we are identified with Jesus. And we're identified with him in terms of our salvation and our justification. Um, but we're also identified with Jesus in terms of that affirmation from the Father that He's pleased with us and that He loves us. Now the next thing that happens is that the Spirit impels Jesus to go out into the wilderness where he's to be tempted by the devil. And again, there's a Greek word here um, that is very violent. The word to be sent out or to be impelled out literally means it's the same word used in the Gospels to uh, talk about when Jesus cast out demons. Okay? So just that, that sort of violent, forceful um, word, ekbalo in Greek, which means to cast out a demon. That's the word that the spirit is used for the spirit that drove Jesus out into the wilderness. Actually, it's also the word that Jesus used when he said, um, you know, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray urgently or earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out labors into his harvest. That word send 
is this word to cast or to fling or to fire. So there's a sense here that Jesus was fired or cast out into the wilderness by the power of the Spirit um, that had just been poured upon him. And the parallel for us in the Exodus here is the violence with which God overthrew Egypt, which culminated in the destruction of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. And out in the wilderness, Jesus had to face Satan. Now, as I've already said, Mark doesn't tell us anything about this. If we want to know the details, we have to go to two of the other Gospels. Um, And I think all Mark is doing in this is just highlighting the parallel with the Exodus here. Now, the Israelites, once they had crossed the Red Sea, they were immediately free of their oppressors. Um, A new reality, which was completely different from the one they knew, had opened up. Um, And there were problems associated with this. The immediate problem was food and water. Um, But the question is, um, and it's significant that Jesus' first temptation in those other Gospels was over food, and that Jesus tempts, uh, Satan tempts Jesus to turn you know, the stones into bread. So when Israel crossed the Red Sea, there was this immediate problem, and they immediately they started complaining about God. They had seen God's mighty acts of deliverance, you know, supernatural things that, that we could hardly imagine seeing. Um, they had seen all that and experienced all that, and yet immediately there was no food. They started grumbling. Now, it says in Deuteronomy that God did this deliberately. There was no accident. He tested them. He wanted to see what was in their hearts. He wanted to see whether they would prioritize obeying God over food. Same issue that Adam and Eve had as well. Would they prioritize obeying God over the immediate um, you know, satisfaction of hunger? Um, now, for us, the temptation is always going to be, can we trust God for the things we need? This is how it relates to us. We know that Israel failed, and we know that Jesus succeeded. Now, we are the ones that are baptized into Christ and we identify with Jesus and we have the Holy Spirit, the same as with Jesus. However, we still, we still have our sinful flesh that's with us. So the question for us is, are we going to trust Jesus? Are we going to trust God to provide everything that we need? Um, you know, I remember, um, I've heard Christians say, I don't know if any of you have heard this, people say this, but I, I, I've heard once or twice in my life say, do you know what? My problems didn't, didn't really start until I became a Christian. Now, often, like you see in the Alpha Course, for example, we see very dramatic testimonies of people whose lives were really messed up and they come to Christ and they really get the healing that they need. But for some people whose lives were perhaps not so messed up, becoming a Christian can involve them in a new set of struggles. Now, in the church that I grew up in, the Baptist church that I'm very grateful for, um, we had a vineyard pastor from Colorado once come to the church, and he, he said this memorable line that I've never forgotten. He said, when you become a Christian, it's like the Holy Spirit surrounds you in cotton wool, and everything is great, and you feel God's presence. But he said, once you've been a Christian a little while, It's like God withdraws his presence from you. Now, theologically, we know that God doesn't withdraw his presence from us. But that feeling of being close to God can sometimes withdraw. And he said God does that to find out whether we're going to seek him or not. 
And I think this is the issue here in the temptations. When we're out in the wilderness, are we going to trust God and, and believe that he is with us? Are we going to trust him that he does provide for us? Okay, I think we all know that we can trust him and I think many of us have got testimonies and stories that we can share with each other about how God has provided for us. But the temptation is always that we get discouraged. You know, we get discouraged just doing life, going to work, paying our bills, sickness, things that get us down, conflict with others, relationship hassles. All of these things tempt us to despair and we know that the devil does use these things to attack us. But the bottom line is, God is with us. God is with us and we can trust him. He won't let us down. The next thing that Mark says is that Jesus was with the wild beasts. Um, this is potentially the most flaky bit of what I'm going to say today. Um, Actually, it's interesting that Mark doesn't even tell us the outcome of Jesus' temptation. He doesn't tell us. He just says Jesus was being tempted by the devil and he was with the wild beasts. Okay? And, and he was with the wild beasts. It's such a little throwaway comment. Like, what is the point of this detail? Like, once you've been reading the Bible for a few years, you know, you start to realize that there's, there's the Bible's full of these little apparently innocuous, possibly random sentences but as you go on in life, you realize that absolutely nothing is random in the Bible. It's, everything's there for a purpose. Even if we don't understand it, it's there for a purpose. So the, the first thing that occurred to me in trying to figure this out was that actually it doesn't say that the wild beast tried to eat him or anything or attack him. It just says he was with the wild beast. And so the first thing that occurred to me was that this is a picture of what Jesus does. He restores the harmony that, that God had in the creation to, to begin with. In the original creation, there was, no, there was no conflict between humans and animals. There was no conflict of interest. Um, every single thing that had been created was designed to work and live together in a kind of beautiful harmony. And that harmony was destroyed by the fall. So the fact that Jesus was with the wild beasts indicates to us that, yeah, this is the king. This is the one who's going to restore everything. Now, there is another aspect of this, um, and that is that in the Old Testament, the nations, or the word used for nations, is often used to, to sort of uh, refer to the, the pagan nations, the untamed and wild nations of the world. Now, in, um, in Daniel chapter 6, we know that Daniel was in the lion's den. And God shut them out of the lions. But in the next chapter of Daniel, in chapter 7, there's this, this the beginning of Daniel's kind of prophetic writing that's quite hard to understand. And in Daniel 7, Daniel has a dream. And he has this vision in his dream of four terrible and frightening beasts. Um, and each one has a kind of human, political, and tyrannical dimension and characteristic. One has the mind of a man. One is told to devour much flesh. One is given dominion, and then the fourth one combines all the destructive characteristics of the other three. Um, and traditionally, theologians have seen these creatures as representative of the four main 
sort of oppressive regimes of the ancient world, being Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. But then what happens next in Daniel 7 is that one like the Son of Man comes and destroys these beasts. And then he sets up a kingdom that rules over the whole world. Um, And I just wonder whether this throwaway line about the the wild beasts in, in, in our passage in Mark is something to do with the mission and the great commission of the church with Jesus as at its head. Because if you remember in Matthew 28, Jesus said, um, disciple all the nations. Um, and if we take that Old Testament idea that the nations are kind of scary and wild and, and like wild animals that are not tame, that are dangerous, then discipling the nations and inviting and bringing the nations into obedience and relationship with Jesus we might be able to see that in the idea of animals being tamed, wild beasts becoming tame and friendly. And you have to remember that, depending on our eschatology, we might see this different ways, but remember in Isaiah 11, where Isaiah says, you know, the wolf is going to lie down with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. So there is this promise, there is this fulfillment. Now, whether we believe that premillennially that's going to happen after Jesus comes back or you have a different eschatology, you believe that's going to happen in in human history before Jesus comes back. The point is that at some point, this harmony is going to be, the culmination of God's kingdom is going to result in a harmony between animals that previously ate each other and us and the animals. Now the final thing in the passage is that following his ordeal, or at the end of this ordeal in the wilderness, angels come and minister to Jesus. Um, But notice this happens when he's still in the wilderness, okay? This is just before he goes back to civilization. They come and they minister to him while he's still in the the wilderness. And I think in the Exodus, if we, we continue our parallel, this idea that this is mirroring the Exodus, the way that God provided in, in, uh, in the wilderness was with the manna. God provided miraculously for Israel with the manna that came every morning. The parallel for us, again, is that God's promise to us is that he will provide everything we need. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you will need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So we can, in confidence, um, trust God for what we need. Um, and in, at the end of the Great Commission, when he, to- when he sent them into the world, Jesus' last promise, the last thing he says to his disciples in Matthew is that he will be with them to the end of the age. So, finally, to end, this passage, which at first sight looks to be a shorter version of events that are given by Matthew and Luke, instead of actually just compressing those events and sort of tempting us to skip over them, is actually inviting us to look at Jesus' ministry and our own callings in a different light. Um, And in describing how Jesus' first steps in ministry mirrored Israel's first steps after the Exodus, Mark shows us how Jesus completes the unfinished business of the Old Testament and fulfills the promise of Scripture. And not only that, the allusion to Israel and the Exodus in the sequence of events described here in Mark means that this trajectory 
the same trajectory, baptism, filling in the spirit, temptation and testing, overcoming and taming the beasts, and yet being ministered to by angels and experiencing God's provision. This is also our story.